Today, I want to talk about this case. It's a really, really upsetting case. Um, I don't even think I need to use the graphics of it because one, it's, it, it's a murder of a 39-year-old vulnerable woman in society that I think was let down by a lot of people. She was called Angela Wrightson and she lived in Hartlepool in the United Kingdom. And she was murdered on the 8th of December 2014 by two teenage girls, one aged 13 and one aged 14, at the time of their murder. At the time of that murder, that's what they were. She was locally known as Alki Ange, so she had a drinking problem. She was also under mental health. She was definitely vulnerable in the society, and we have a lot of this, don't we, now going on where you know, these vulnerable people that would usually have had a lot more help and care are sometimes left, you know, because of what's going on in the world. People, we don't look after our neighbours anymore, do we? Don't really watch out for people anymore. The thing is with Angela, she was this trusting, vulnerable woman. She was a drinker and she smoked a lot. But she was a happy and a nice person. She was a harmless person. She had spent time in prison um, for very minor things. And I think her family have said that Angela, that was where, Ange where she really felt the safest was in prison. Because a lot of people that are vulnerable like this, like Angela was, and a lot of people who are alcoholics like Angela was, and they have all these other issues like Angela did, find it difficult to live in society amongst what we so-called normal people. So I don't know where these two teenagers even come into that class as being normal as we go through this case. And I want to really explain to you about Angela, about the vulnerability of her, so you can really understand the gravity of this case, of how these kids took advantage of her, used her, abused her, until they killed her. So Angela, as I said, she was known as Alki Ange, harmless. Neighbours liked her, she was harmless. But she was overridden, really, I think, with teenagers and young adults using her property as a place to go and drink and take drugs. And because she couldn't get rid of them, once she allowed these in, they overpowered her. There was nothing she could do to get rid of these at all. I think she made two, three hundred phone calls um, in a matter of months about trying to get help. No one helped her. The neighbours complained about Angela to the local authorities and to the police and about stating that she was vulnerable and she was being really used and abused by this local community of the youths that were hanging around at that time and um, using her property for drug taking, for lots of illicit things were going on there. And she had no control over that. There was an incident of about four or five months before her death of where, um, where a teenager, another teenager, had threatened her that if she continued to ring the police to try and get them out, you know, things would be done to her. So she was reluctant to come forward to the authorities, really. 
And plus I think she felt, she, as she was lonely, some of these were her friends. I think it's when it became so overpowering on her that she couldn't control the situation anymore, it really got her down, really got her down. Now two of the people that used to go into Angela's home on a regular basis were these two girls. Now I can't name these two girls, no one can. They have amenity and they have had since this crime took place and actually in 2021 or 2020 um, that was extended for lifetime so we will never ever be able to say their names. They are now protected by that. That means that when they are released from prison or if they may already be released from prison because they're now over 18, both of them now, that um, you know they will be released back into society. So this is why we call them Olive and Yasmin and that's what they was called in the court and the court records and any other records that we are allowed to say about them. This is also why we can't name their families and so when you have the mother of the youngest one or the oldest one as I speak about it's because of that. I mean we are lucky actually that we can even report this crime at all and as we go through this case I'll explain that more to you. So on the night of the 8th of December 2014 you had these two girls, young girls going out and as let's call them this Olive and this Yasmin. They were you know normally running around the streets late at night um, and I suppose it began like any other night for them. This is what they normally did was hang around the streets, they was known as runaways, they kept running away from home, they was known as trouble, you know they'd some had been taken into care and then been released back out to the care. There's a lots of issues around these two girls but on this one night on the 8th of December they decided to go to Angela's home on their own. There was no one else in there, they was there. They was in that house between five and seven hours and what they went there to do was to murder this woman. And when I say murder, I should say torture, abuse. It can't, it's not just murder. They was in that house between five and seven hours. They used so many things on Angela. They got a piece of wood and put nails into it where they hit her and beat her with that. I think she had over 70 slash injuries on her body from that piece of wood with the nail sticking out. They used a shovel to hit her with and beat her with. There was a, I think there was, I think um, 54 separate blunt force traumas to Angela at the time of her autopsy. So we, you know, this was torture. And as they was torturing her, they were snap, you know, photographing each other, doing selfies with this going on. So it, when you think it's only, they're only 13 and 14 year old, you have to think at what point within them five to seven hours, did it not stop? Why didn't they stop? And when we look at their backgrounds, and we're gonna go on to their backgrounds in a minute, of, of their background. Now all, all of them, including Angela and these two girls, came from disruptive households. They came from backgrounds like Angela did. Angela was this 
She may have been 39, but she certainly didn't act like she was 39. She had been brought up in foster care homes and, you know, children's homes all her life. We don't really know what happened to Angela that made her become this alcoholic, that made, you know, that made her become this really um, vulnerable person that couldn't really cope with the outside world as we do. And that made her become such a victim to these people. But these girls themselves have a background and we're gonna look at all three of these backgrounds. With Angela, I think she, by, by her saying and her family saying that she felt more comfortable being in a prison environment is telling you something about her self-confidence. It's telling you something about how she feels about what's really happening outside. She felt in prison that she was protected because they probably did really look after her in prison. Because as I said, she was very harmless. She really didn't do much wrong, stealing and stuff like that, drunk and disorderly, these sort of things to get back in prison. And some offenders need prison because they're so used to it. And as with Angela's case, need that feeling of protection that sometimes they do things to get themselves put back into prison for that protection. And I think this is what Angela did. But again, we've released her out and we put her into this society with no real assistance or care. She was under social services, I think up till 2011 for a couple of years. Uh, that ended in 2011 and by 2014, Really, I think, you know, it was aspiring now her life out of control. And it was a life that I don't think she wanted. I don't think she knew how to get herself out of this situation that she had found herself in with these youths coming into her home and using her and abusing her and not feeling that she had enough assistance from the police or anybody else to really fight this off. So I think this is where Angela's vulnerability comes from was her upbringing where she had been in this care system and her low self-esteem. Probably she felt that, you know, anything was better than living like this. So in summing up, Angela, I think what really um, makes me think when I read about her is that she's had this traumatic childhood, a childhood that she never really recovered from in and out of the care process, in and out of social services, no real stability, no real understanding of, of how to really run her own life and have that ability and that confidence to do that. We have this woman that would rather be in prison than be out living her life. It really tells you something about Angela. And a woman that was probably so vulnerable that she had no hope there was no chance of her ever taking to control of her life when you had these individuals and many of them coming in and abusing her home. She couldn't have handled that on her own. But the lack of involvement from social services or police at that time in this case you know, didn't give her much hope, did it? So what are you saying then to these other teenagers now that are also coming into this house and using and abusing Angela in different ways. They ended up killing her 
So I think what we need to do now is look at these girls. As I say, we can't mention their names at all, so we're just going to call them Olive and uh, Yasmin. So most of the information, and all really the information, I can get on this case when it relates to these two um, defendants. Because um, they're young and everything about them has been sealed, really. So it's about the serious case review and the other reports and reviews that's been done by social services and other agencies um, relating to this case. is the only way you can get information on these um, kids, really, because that's what they are. They were kids at the time of this murder. So let's have a look at this you know, 13 and 14 year old, you know, drinking, smoking, taking drugs, being all out all night, sleeping out, having sex at that age, having relationships with older men at that age. They were so um, out of control that nothing was going to stop these kids. They thought they were untouchable. So we had already seen from Angela that the police and the social services weren't getting involved in what was going on in this home invasion. And let's call it a home invasion because that's exactly what it is. So these girls thought they could do anything. They had no real parental control at all, even though they did have families. And it's been clearly proven throughout these reports done um, that there was really no involvement. And then these parents didn't really care. They didn't really care if these girls were out late at night and stuff. And that's what it reads. And as we come a bit further down this case, there is one of the mothers that, that says a little bit about her child. But um, when you read the serious case review here, these kids were living adult lives. They were young. And I think the 13-year-old, I think, is where we need to really start and look at her background. Because as I've said before, all three of these Angela and these two girls had traumatic backgrounds. They had issues in their childhood that really show one that allowed one to become a victim or couldn't fight off becoming a victim. And we have two that are perpetrators of the most serious kind. So let's talk about this 13-year-old, this Yasmin, as she's known in all court records and all documents. Let's talk about her family. Let's talk about her upbringing. Now this child, the parents literally basically didn't have a care about this child. They really didn't. They weren't really interested, even before this murder, in what this child was doing. They had no care at all. It seemed like it wasn't their responsibility, you know. <laughs> they were just, there was just so much lack of parenting skill here that then they try to blame others for that lack but when you really look at this you know um this behavior of this girl of these two girls in this case this where they are um torturing someone for many many hours to have power over that person that's what this is really all about this case you know it's about power control humiliation and that's what they tried to do to angela probably this is what had been done to them. And by reading their backgrounds, much as we can tell, this probably is what happened to these children from a very young age, is that they were put down. They were felt, or it was felt that they felt they were useless, unwanted, uncared for, unloved. 
there was domestic abuse in the home, there was violence, you know, there was um, violence towards themselves. But this 13-year-old, all the mother said was, and I think this was in a meeting way before the murder, about a year or so before the murder, when she was about 13 or 12, I think she was at the time when this meeting took place between her and the social services. The family blamed her for everything. She's let us down, can't stand her, it's her, you know, she's trouble, she does it all the time. You know, it was constantly about her. Not one of them, because really, there was drugs, there was alcohol, there was everything going on in this house. Domestic violence, physical abuse, to this verbal abuse, to this, this girl. But the parents always blamed her, would take no responsibility for their lack of parental guidance with this child. They took no responsibility, even then, before this murder, of anything this child was doing. She was running off, you know, out in the streets all night. But they weren't out looking for her. They weren't there trying to get her back, help her, no. They had no interest in this girl at all. So this girl was allowed at 12 year old, probably even younger than that, to roam the streets all hours, day and night. Sleep with boys, somewhere. They didn't care. They didn't care what she was doing, where she was. Take drugs, take you know, medication, drugs, that weren't for her. You know, these are not atypical, are they, teenagers? She weren't. These are teenagers that are left to their own devices, that were left, and really, I suppose, when you're hanging around at two or three o'clock in the morning, now, you know, where were the parents? What did they think? But what the parents have done since this murder, have tried to blame social services. I told you, you know, she's never been any good. Well, you know, I think when we talk about children, and we talk about their upbringing, and we talk about how the child is affected by domestic violence, it's, it's affected by the continuous put down that you're no good, don't want you, don't, you're not loved, you're not cared for. The parents are on drink and drugs and that's all they care about. I mean, well, I don't know what we expect from children, to tell you the truth. I don't know, I don't know what they expected. But to wash the hands of her totally and blame her for all this. I, I think a lot of blame actually um, should go to these parents. And when they say that social services hasn't done enough for them, they should have stepped in, they should have done something. But so should they. You know, we, we constantly say about social services taking children away. And I mean, social services have said this themselves. It's very difficult for them to step in when a child is doing this disruptive behaviour. And I think what one of these parents said to the social services about her behaviour is because she's spoiled. Spoiled? Uh, you know, and I think the lack of understanding with social services about what was really going on here is an issue as well. So they're not free from blame here at all in this. But I don't think what we should expect social services, or I don't think anyone would want social services to continually step in and tell us what we should be doing about our children. I think normal people, 
people that love their children, that want the best for their children, whether they've got mental health, whatever they've got, and they've got children, try their best for their children. Anyone that would allow a 12-year-old out on the streets at two, three o'clock in the morning or not even to bother coming home, and you're wondering why this kid isn't coming home so you report her missing a few days later, oh, she's a runaway. She's not a runaway. Not really, because I don't think this girl thought she had anything to come home for. I think, but once we involve the social services like that, we try and blame them for everything that's going wrong um, with our children's lives. I think, you know, it's a, it's a slippery, slidey road here because how much power do you want the government to take over your child? Really? You, you wouldn't want that. So these parents didn't want to admit their lack of care, their duty as care, actually, as parents to this 12-year-old, helped to create a monster. And that's exactly what they created. Because for this girl, and this is a terrible, terrible crime of torture, beatings, murder, I think they even hit her with a TV. They hit her with <laughs> lots of different stuff. You know, it was, it was a, a tremendous, um, an, an aggressive attack which was prolonged and prolonged and prolonged until she died. And I think these parents are responsible in part for that. So now let's talk about Olive, the 14-year-old. Now, Olive, um, I think she was arrested for assault a few months before this on somebody else. And she also caused damage to her property and stuff. So she had a bit of a history anyway. She was under social services and been in and out of care. And her family, were, again, were, you know, and I'm going to say it, despicable, really. You couldn't call them mother and father. I don't, I don't think you could. This girl um, had reported turning back up to a children's home that she was staying in with a black eye that the father had caused her. You know, so there was domestic violence physical abuse in this family. Again, this child was left to her own devices. She was also drinking, taking drugs, um, taking other drugs, whatever drugs they could get. She was also sleeping around um, with men a lot older than her because she had no parental, again, um, input into her life. I think this girl was in a car accident as well. Um, it was reported about a year before that. She had spent two weeks in the hospital. The father turned up once and literally just said that, you know, how much issue he had in her, you know, creating all this because he had to come and see her. He only came and saw her once. He was absolutely disgraceful in that hospital um, coming to see this child. And the mother, her mother, never came at all to see this child. So we now know, know that this child right from a young age, was again unwanted, unloved, uncared for. We now know there was drugs in that household, alcohol abuse, physical abuse, domestic abuse. There was so much abuse that this child had always gone through before she even got to murdering somebody else. She was in this care home and some of her therapy was, was to draw um, out her feelings. And you'll see some of these drawings and it shows her where someone's been knifed and stuff. So there were signs here, there were clear signs here that something was going wrong. 
and you're always going to have a leader and a follower. And I think this is why the judge paralleled this case very closely with um, James Bulger case, because there isn't really a lot of difference as James Bulger was tortured and murdered, so was um, Angela, tortured and murdered by very, very young people. And as I say, it wasn't just a quick murder, this was a long, long drawn out torturous murder by these two. And I think the same judge, he was, I think, junior counsel on the um, James Bulger murder. And he also now presided, I think he's a QC now, he presided over this case in 2015, 16. Um, there was issues there and also, I'll, I'll tell you why it took so long for it to get to court. But he did draw parallels between the two cases of this. And that's why he wouldn't allow uh, the names of these kids to be put out there for fear. Because as I said, they love social media. They had their whole lives on social media because this is all really that these kids really had. There was no one saying, come home for your tea at six o'clock or five o'clock, you know, wash your hair, have a bath, let's sit and have a chat, you know, let's do your homework. There was none of that in this family. This family didn't care whether these kids were home or not. They really didn't. Actually, Olive, the older one, the 14 year old, was actually in the way. They really didn't like her. They really didn't want her. They didn't care for her at all. And I think this case really highlights one about what we have to do when it comes to vulnerable adults in our society. Because there's a lot more cases like this one, what you've had with vulnerable people being abused and their homes took over by drug dealers or for crack houses. We've had actually uh, modern day slavery that we've now had been reporting of people that are so vulnerable with mental health, have their homes have been took over, their money's been took over, their lives have been took over, and now they're slaves to these people. This case has highlighted issues, I think even since 2014 when this come out, that in the UK alone, this is a massive problem now, and we need to protect our vulnerable. Now, yes, I am telling you about the history of these girls, because as I've always said, when you have even domestic violence when you're growing up in a property, it's like having, you know, it's like a soldier, isn't it, coming back from war. That's what they say. Of course these kids were damaged by what they had experienced. But then a lot of kids are damaged from childhood by what they've experienced, a lot worse than what has happened to these. And would never dream of going to someone's home and torturing them between five and seven hours, hitting them with a telly, getting a, a piece of wood, putting nails in it, and battering that person with that to over 70 slash marks on their body. No child, you know, from a background of that, if this is not enough of an excuse for what they did to this woman. There really isn't, that's not enough. They had intervention from social services they did, they, social services did not continually remove them from their home. They tried to work with this family. It was the family that didn't want to work with them. And sometimes I hear cases where people have slated the social services for taking this child or for not taking this child. But I think, where does it come? 
Where does, where does it end? How could anybody, anywhere, have realised that these two girls from that background would go on to do such a serious crime as murder at that age? No one could have predicted that. No one. I don't even think they thought they could do it. I think that one night when they were high on their drugs and their drink, they knew her, they knew Angela, they knew that she was going to be an easy victim. They knew it and they took the chance and they will pay for that for the rest of their lives. Because yes, they've gone to prison for a minimum of 15 years. Um, and I think now they're adults now, so they would have moved on to adult prison. Hopefully, because we don't know. Hopefully, they're going to give some treatment. But as I've said with James Bulger case, that means nothing. Because when you see how these kids were brought up, how much can we trust when they get out? In 15 years, you know, these kids, when they get out, are still going to be old enough to do, you know, young enough to do something again. Hopefully they won't, but we never know. We will never know. Not really. Because now we can never mention their names. They have lifetime immunity. That means we cannot mention their names ever. Ever. And, you know, when we talk about Venables, John Venables, we still can't, he's had how many identities had now? Two? Two identities? You know, you're talking about around a million pounds. So this is costing society this a lot of money again. This is something we have, we have to protect these people. And I'll tell you why we're going to have to protect them. Because when they went on their social media sites, putting all this out, and this case broke, they were, uh, well, this is why the case had to be stopped actually as well. The judge couldn't have the trial there. He had to stop the trial for a year because Facebook went mad. It was like a virtual you know, lynching of these girls and also for their families. So that's why none of them can be named. And this is why this case took, you know, a good couple of years to come to court, really. I think it was meant to be 2015. The judge put it off to 2016. No reporting at all was allowed on this case. These reporters had to, no, there was nothing. So we are lucky even now that we are allowed to report on this case because the danger to these two and the danger to their parents or their families or people that know them is still very high, very, very high. This case wasn't taken well in this country, I'll tell you that now, because of the gravity of, and, and of it and the gravity of the abuse, the sustained attack on a vulnerable woman. But also, social services didn't get off lightly either and nor did the police. Because when you have the police, and the police have been called by Angela herself 259 times or more to help her, and they did nothing. So then you have the social services that dropped her really in 2011 and left this vulnerable woman, and you could tell she was vulnerable. You can tell by her photos she was vulnerable. She looked a lot older than 39 year olds, uh, year old, a lot older. She wasn't coping. She wasn't coping in society. These agencies really fell short in helping her. But I don't believe that any of these agencies could have predicted that these two, these two kids, these two perpetrators, would have killed anybody. But I do believe that if it hadn't been them, something else would have happened to Angela.
because she was such a vulnerable person and there were so many people that were predatory like going into her home. So there needed to be some questions answered there. And so there was a serious case review. There was lots of reviews um, and lots of reports done by all different agencies to try and work out what is best now going forward to helping to protect vulnerable adults in society. And as I've said to you before, when we talk about home invasions, because this is really what it's about, these people are invading the homes of vulnerable adults. They're taking charge of their money, their life, they're taking control of everything. They are using their property in ways that shouldn't be used. And a lot of these are local authority homes that these vulnerable adults live in. Now I used to work and I have as a mediator and I have done for many, many years. And I used to do pro bono work to help people from stop being evicted. And they was usually vulnerable people that were threatened with eviction because they have allowed people to use their homes. Um, or allowed others to use their homes. But it's when you then you, you go in to a mediation, it's where these local authorities come up, well, you know, we're going to evict you because you've done this, you've done that. But is it the local authorities' real issue to be getting involved with this sort of, and it is criminal behaviour when you are invading somebody else's property? You know, and these people, these vulnerable people would have been evicted if someone like me and others, and many of us do a lot of pro bono work, or we used to, we don't do it so much anymore, um, working with councils or local authorities and, and people to help vulnerable people survive out there with so many predators around to start taking advantage of them. So I understand this case, and I understand where they're coming from with this case. And I understand now where the family of Angela is coming from with this case, because they're trying to bring in Angela's law. Now, Angela's law wants to protect vulnerable adults from this home invasion type thing. You know, usually the local authorities use things called ASBOs and evictions to try and um, stop this sort of behaviour um, in, in their estates or, you know, in their homes. But, you know, an ASBO really, <laughs> an antisocial behaviour order, it's not worth the paper it's written on, really. It's a civil thing, it's, you know, you can get a slap on the wrist and, you know, caution. Yes, yeah, difficult because if your child is the one doing the issue, um, creating the issues here, um, then you have to, the parents have to be liable for that and it's hard to prove that. And I think, really, that's the way to go. I think if, if that you cannot controlling your children and you're allowing your kids, your teenagers, to invade people's lives, especially vulnerable people's lives, then yes, the consequences should fall to you. And I think that may be deter a lot of, um, of these adults allowing their children to roam around the streets and um, create absolutely, ter and terrorise some of these communities. So I think that should be enforced more, and I think it is now. But when you come to where it's a criminal issue, and this is a criminal issue, there's no doubt this is a criminal issue, is that the law needs to be changed and what they want is to have like a um, the same as domestic um, law where it is a criminal offence and, and the police and the social services and the councils can ha have um, more powers to enforce the law. So let's talk about now this Angela's law and why the family are campaigning so hard for this law and they should do. It's a, it's a, it's a very good thing that needs to come in really. 
because there isn't any protection out there really when you talk about the vulnerable um, in our society for when it comes to these home invasion type things. And I think what, what this law will do it is to protect the vulnerable um, people against harassment. Um, and that's what she was having. Angela was clearly having that. She was being harassed continuously by people coming in and out of her house. And if she wasn't allowed it, then they would bully her. And this also would cover that. It would also cover um, this, uh, the torment. Um, they were standing outside her house. And if she wouldn't let them in, they would just scream and shout, throw stuff at her windows. But it's also about this extortion. So it's about taking the money of a vulnerable person and using it for your own uh, use. So this law would cover all that. And it would give then the police and the social services um, and other agencies like um, local authorities and that to enforce the law more to where it was ha you had criminal liability rather than a civil liability like an ASBO which is like a slap on the hand and even threatened with eviction which can take two years and then judges especially in this day and age judges are not really happy about evicted anyone. I think Angela's family was so devastated by this this horrendous crime sadistic you <laughs> disgraceful, disgusting crime, that they feel they need to do something. And as we say, sometimes the law can only be changed by public opinion. It can only be changed by pressure and by campaigning. Because this is actually, if this come out, this law would be really, really great. Really, really great. And we all know vulnerable people and we all worry about vulnerable people. Nothing can bring Angela back. But at least if her death achieves something, it would be really, really great. I will continue to update you on the progress, if any, of Angela's law, because as you know, it can take years. So let's look at the, these reports and the conclusion of these reports into um, Angela's death. I think it came down to five findings calling for better communication between the agencies, which it clearly lacked is that all the agencies now work together. And I know with mental health and usually local authorities and police now, there is now like a joint um, group, you know, of um, services that now link up. So hopefully that has got better. Um, do I think it would be still um, great where this is never gonna happen again? No, absolutely not. But I think there has been changes from this case. I think there has been lessons learned, especially in this, um, where you use multiple agencies and everyone knows what the other one's doing. So no one, you know, no one can sort of fall through the cracks. So let's hope that continues and gets better in time. I think another thing that's come out of this is there, there, are, there is this um, improvement and this connection between child services and mental health. Because when we're talking about kids out in the street and teenagers out in the street, and a lot of these are already under social services. You know, a lot of kids in this country are under social services. And if we then link them with mental health, one, it gives mental health an opportunity to also assist these kids with stuff. But it also makes us aware of in what areas that you may have someone vulnerable and you may have a group of kids hanging around in the streets. So when the police um, are called, a flag, a red flag comes up really and it alerts out to all this. So now they're all sort of joined together. So it's very interesting how this case has changed certain things in, in that and it has joined social services and mental health I think closer together which is a good thing. David Pickford, he's the chairman I think of the um, Hartlepool 
safeguarding um, children's board. And he said it's a very difficult balance between um, keeping the children with their families and putting them in care. And I can see what he means, because when you read this case in detail, and I'll put all the case stuff up there as I usually do, uh, when you have these parents that won't admit that they've done anything wrong, how can you help them? It, it's, it's very difficult to help someone that won't admit what they've done wrong. I think when this child was interviewed, or one of these kids were interviewed when they was in prison, she said she'd always been blamed for everything that went on in that house. From a very young age, she'd always been blamed for it. And I think when you hear from these parents, because none of these parents wanted anything to do with the serious case review or the safeguarding thing, they didn't want to know. They'd wash their hands of it. Oh, it's not us. They did it, their fault, nothing to do with us. They were their children. But they didn't want to take any responsibility at all for their part in this. And it's clear that as parents, they had a part to play in this. Not so much the murder, you could argue, but the behaviour, allowing these kids to be out all night. There was no input from these families at all. I think one of the mothers did go and she'd done an exclusive interview on ITV, again though, not named, um, she can't be, and said that she had helped so asked social services for help and she had tried to, you know, get her put into care, this child, but never really took any responsibility for the child's behaviour throughout any of it. So yes, they have tried to say, but you know, it wasn't me, it wasn't me. Everybody here had a part to play. The parents, the children, they really did, the social services, the police, everyone played a part in this very tragic murder of Angela. Everybody had a small part to play. But the perpetrators here were this 13 and 14 year old kids that did this murder. They are the real perpetrators here. They did it. They enjoyed it. They photographed it. They continued to photograph it. They really enjoyed it. And yes, it is known that they, um, you know, there was considerable evidence, con considerable evidence that these kids were um, experiencing abuse at home um, and neglect. And this did impact, I suppose, on their psychological development from a very, very young age. And that could have been, in part, what caused this to happen. It could have. You don't know. And as I said, there was signs from the drawings that were coming out a few months before this murder on the feelings of this girl. You know, you can't do this to children. You can't treat children like that and not expect a negative outcome. Uh, I think their personalities, their way of this being able to you know, do this sort of murder to someone and not thinking it wasn't a spare-of-the-moment thing, this was the longevity of this murder, shows that they were enjoying what they did. They had plenty of opportunities to stop when she wasn't that injured. They continued and continued to beat this woman, torture this woman, for five to seven hours until she was dead. So these are murderers. And I don't know if 15 years was enough.
for them. You know, I don't know if you can rehabilitate someone that couldn't, in all the um, hours of torturing someone, couldn't hold that back. They couldn't stop. The trial judge here was um, Justice Globe, and he is a um, QC, a very good judge. And as I said, he was the judge on the James, no, he was, sorry, he wasn't the judge on the James Bulger case. He was the junior counsel on the James Bulger case, and now he is a judge uh, in his own right. And he did see parallels between these two, um, the two cases. And he did, and I think what he did was right to protect the identity of these two. Because there's no way that these could come out really and be safe and be known and be safe. No way, not into this society and especially into society as it is now today. You know, in the last week in the UK, uh, in London alone, we've had five um, kids murdered, really, by a knife, by knives shooting and a crossbow murder. Innocent children, gang-related warfare going on in, on our streets. So these girls and their families, when they're in these sort of communities, would not survive one day if it was known what their, what their identities are. Not one day would they survive in this country. So the judge was right to do what he did. And I think the minute he saw what Facebook and the, and the other different you know, um, media outlets um, of the public opinion, they were releasing out this public opinion, which was horrifying because as I said, it was like a public lynching if they people could have got hold of these two girls, even as children, they would have killed them, themselves, I think. This is how much hatred for these people are in this country, even today. So it's a little bit like the James Bulger murder in that way, and in the public opinions way. So I think this judge handled it the best way he could because I don't think he had any choice in doing it any other way, not at all. So this has been the case of Angela. Uh, you know, Angela Wrightson was this vulnerable 39-year-old, loving, caring person. Her only downfall was that she was trusting and vulnerable. Yes, she was an alcoholic, Yes, she had spent time in prison. No way, though, did she deserve to die and be treated like that by people that really, at one point, she thought was her friends. I hope that our cases, and as I say, what we try and do is give awareness out there. Now, this case relates to vulnerable people, children that are being dragged up, really, by people that don't care about them. But it's more about this home invasion by people who are attacking vulnerable people, who are you know, taking their money, taking their lives over, taking their homes over. This is what this case is really about. And I think if you know anyone that's going for that, or even if you suspect anyone that's going for that, 
ring the authorities, ring them, tell, and get it stopped. Because these people sometimes are so vulnerable, they can't ask for help themselves. So they need someone else to do it for them. And if you're wrong, you're wrong. Whoever you hurt, but what you could have done is saved a life. So this is why I want this case to go out there. And this is why I wanted to make sure that we try and tell as much about this case in the vulnerability side of it. Yes, these kids were a nightmare, but were they born killers? Mm, don't know. I actually think they may have been made. But again, I'm gonna leave that up to you.